0: This episode is going to be a replay of an episode from our second season on consequentialism. You can find more issues related to government in that season, as well as an episode on one-issue voting from our third season on abortion. However, I am only replaying this episode because I think it best gets to the core of what I want to draw out here in this season. The idea of voting as a responsibility of a citizen relies on a few key assumptions. First, it relies on the assumption that I am a citizen in the truest sense of the word. While it might at first seem obvious that I am a U.S. citizen, that becomes murkier if I consider myself as holding another citizenship. When I go to Romania or when an ambassador goes to China, we don't vote in their elections or serve in their armies because we are resident aliens, even if we we live there for a lifetime. As Christians, then, a big question about our responsibility in voting is, where is our primary citizenship? And are we more ambassadors and resident aliens in our country of origin or citizens? Another big question is whether or not voting crosses a moral line. Is voting for a commander-in-chief, someone upon whom I am conferring the right to kill other people, is that crossing a moral line? Even if you're for war, if you understand that every president in our history— Has, uh, or at least our recent history, has um, basically committed war crimes and done horrendous things and uh, overthrown democracies and all kinds of stuff. Does that not bring into question whether or not uh, you can vote for somebody who you know is almost 100% certain to go uh, fight an unjust war? And am I participating in violence by seeking legislation which always has the sword behind it? I definitely don't get into all of the questions that I'd like to in this lengthy episode, but I think it starts a good conversation on the topic of voting, and it begins to help you see some of the moral issues as well as some of the issues of competing kingdoms. As I said, you can explore some of the other episodes on politics from the various seasons for more. So with all that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the replay. Before getting into this episode, I want to just make two quick announcements. The first is an apology for the the quality of uh, certain parts of this uh, this episode. Um, due to our, our lifestyle at the moment and being all over the, the country and just traveling around and uh, all of that, I don't have access to... All of the equipment that I, I normally would have. So, the sound quality and editing, um, I think there are two specific places in this episode where uh, the splicing together uh, of pieces just isn't very good at all. So, I apologize for that um, in advance, and hopefully, you can get through that and uh, for the content. Second, since uh, I didn't have access to all the equipment and Uh, I kind of recorded this in in two larger chunks. I decided, instead of trying to to splice in some of the the ideas that I added later, I decided to just kind of make an addendum after the original episode. So if you stick around after the, the ending music, there will be a very extended addendum discussing some things that I think are important to add to this issue welcome back to the fourth way podcast today we are going to take a look at a very important issue which is the idea of abstention from voting is it moral for christians to abstain from voting do we always need to vote or can we abstain for this episode, we are going to be drawing from quite a number of other episodes, which I will link below. Uh, episodes like our discussion of Romans 13, especially the second part where we talked about the uh, how we apply uh, uh, Romans 13 to our lives, as well as other biblical passages, uh, our whole consequentialism series, which of course comes up so much, and a number of other episodes. So I'll make sure to link those below for your reference. Every week, churches do great good in the community. Churches participate in so many different types of, of social activities, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. But every week, congregants also pass on opportunities in which they can participate in, in doing social goods, uh, either outside of the church or as a part of their church. Just a few weeks ago, I was sitting in our church, and they, they uh, brought up this idea that they needed some extra volunteers for the food pantry. And we were busy, and we didn't sign up for it. And a lot of people, most people, didn't sign up to be a part of the food pantry. Uh, in that moment, I didn't criticize myself and feel guilty and I didn't criticize anybody else either, like well, they should really volunteer for the food pantry. It was just an opportunity that presented itself, which um, you know we we passed on, and I assumed most other people passed on for legitimate reasons. You know, maybe we have really busy schedules, or maybe all of us are involved in a number of other things that are are very important in building our community. Maybe we need that time for our family time. You know, who knows? But I just assumed that we all had good reasons for not volunteering. But last year I experienced something quite a bit different than what I experienced... um, I'm sorry, it wasn't last year, it was a couple years ago. I experienced something very different than this experience in church when I didn't volunteer for a food pantry. See, uh, I argued... That if election season rolls around and both major candidates and parties, or all, all candidates and parties, seem evil, I argued that abstention should be an option for Christians. I didn't say you had to abstain um, necessarily, but if all of your choices are evil, I think it's, a, it's an option you need to have available to you in order to avoid evil. And that's that's essentially what I said. However, I received almost universal criticism from my conservative community, um, saying pretty terrible things. Uh, well, not terrible things, but uh, harsh things. You know, uh, me advocating abstention is irresponsible, it's foolish, it's ignorant, it's idealistic, complacent, unhelpful, unloving, ineffective uh it's unpatriotic it's disrespectful and even it's sinful but you know as i as i reflected a few weeks ago as i was sitting in church and i reflected on this food pantry volunteer position i recognized that there there really isn't any significant distinction between refusing to volunteer at the food pantry and refusing to participate in a vote. Um, I just, I can't think of how I'm obligated towards the one and not the other. Uh, Especially with such a clear obligation that so many people think that I I have to vote. and, and, And I've been trying to figure that out. And I think what I've been discovering over the last four years has been that most, many of the probably just many Americans, but especially many conservative evangelicals, we have this idol, and that idol is politics. We are political idolaters. And when you're an idolater, you don't like your idols being uncovered uh, as idols and false gods. That's offensive. It takes away your control. It takes away your power. It, um, It makes you angry. And that's what I I found when I discussed this idea of abstention last year. It just made people angry. And of course, uh, John Howard Yoder was probably the first person who helped me to begin to uncover the political idolatry in my own heart and in my own community. And you know, then as you as you dig further and you you take a look at at Jesus and um, I think Philippians two is one of the the clearest passages where it just Talks about the way that we seek to control things, and and Philippians two is kind of the the inverse of that, showing us how we need to be submissive and and loving, and relinquishing of our control, um, for God's means and God's plan. You know, Jesus did it. Jesus submitted to extremely foolish things, to becoming a human, leaving the throne of heaven, to relinquishing his control over everything, giving that control, uh, allowing God to just control everything, and then to suffering and death, and not only any death, but humiliating death and painful death on a cross. That was the means that Jesus Christ submitted to. And Philippians 2 calls us to submit to God and his wisdom, and we do that rather than seek control at all costs through any means. And that is that is the opposite of what we see in Christian politics on the right today, by and large. Um, Christian politics on the right, and I'm not saying this isn't true on the left too, but I, I'm in the Christian right. I'm a Christian conservative evangelical, so um, I would view my job right now as talking to my own group, um, because I think we need to make sure we've got our act together before we go out and expect anybody else to change. And so what I see in my own group is this refusal to relinquish control, because control is, is maintained and obtained through politics, and so we have to win politics at all costs. And when I say something like, hey, we might want to consider abstention if we can't maintain our holiness um, and our our example by voting for the guy that most represents us because he's compromised or his party's compromised, I become an enemy to my own group when I don't participate in in that structure because they believe that the politics and legislation that please God and controls the future is is, – it needs all of us to be team players. And so I thought it was extremely telling a couple weeks ago when I, when I realized this, that my group doesn't get angry with me when I don't volunteer at the community food pantry. Because we all know that love and church community are, aren't really where power lies. Right? It's not. I mean, it would be nice if I volunteered at the food pantry, but that's not going to make a real difference in the world what 's going to make a real difference is getting our guy in office, the guy who most represents us and in that discrepancy, we betray our true beliefs through those actions and through our reactions so I think that's that's an important first thing to note that uh, political idolatry really inverts the biblical concept of Uh, what religion is and what our role is. Um, Because our ethic in the Bible, right, don't lord uh, our power over other people. We're supposed to love and serve, and we're supposed to submit to God and His means, and morality is objective, and we don't compromise on it. We live holy lives as salt and light um, so that we can be a sweet-smelling aroma to people and not hypocritical, not compromised. Yes, there's grace when we fall, But our job is to live as a representative community, as ambassadors of the kingdom. And we don't compromise that, not even for our idols, for our idols who promise to give us power. You know, the funny thing about idols, though, is that while idols promise to give us power, they really don't. And a lot of times, if you just start to scratch under the surface, you begin to see how this is the case. Idols oftentimes can give us immediate power, something that seems like power. Uh, They often come across with with great initial force. But as far as their their lasting effects and their, their true power to move beyond the surface of things and into the heart, idols don't have that power. Only God does. Only God can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And only God can bring lasting results, even... Turning evil into good, and you can just see this in in voting. This this false power, this pseudo power. And when I voted in twenty sixteen, which I did, um, I got I think it was something like one one hundred and thirty seven millionth of a say, and I had no meaningful interaction with another human being. I mean, yeah, okay, maybe on maybe on Facebook sometimes. Probably not a meaningful interaction, but I had maybe some interaction with with people on my friends list who are largely, right, well, who largely believe all the same thing. Um, But one 137 millionth of a say without any meaningful interaction. And and on top of this just minuscule say that I have in anything, um, if I believe that the realization of my vote is when my power is achieved, right? so when my vote actually accomplishes something, if my guy gets in office, if I believe that, then I really only have, let's say, a 50% chance of my action being meaningful at all because there's a 50% or so chance that a different candidate is going to win. So in the whole process... I get a very little say, I have a significant chance that what I did will have zero impact at all. And in it all, voting is a discrete, infrequent, you know, once every four years for most people, and an oppositional process. It's a its a process that seeks to, um, it, it's, it's essentially coercive, uh, which I'll, I'll put a link to Stanley Hauerwas making that argument below. But even if you don't believe that, right, it's it's a largely meaningless, discreet, and frequent process. Um, and if that's a process that you want to participate in, you can find a moral candidate and party and, uh, and all of that, and you want to participate in that, that's fantastic. But to elevate it to the place of God and power and control and duty and obligation, that's a problem. Now compare that to if I would go and work in a food pantry. If I commit to working in a food pantry, even let's just say it's probably going to be a a once-a-month thing. I work in the food pantry once a month, building potentially lasting relationships of love through my service to those in need and to those who I will likely see with frequency. If I see these people once a month for a few hours at a time, They see me in an environment where I love them and I serve them. Uh, Biblical concepts here. Um, What impact does that have? Whereas my vote, I have one one hundred thirty-seven millionth of a say, likely will interact with nobody, and that say only matters if my candidate gets elected and can impact people's lives. Uh, I have the opportunity to directly impact people with biblical concepts on, on a monthly basis, even on a weekly basis, or, or even a daily basis if you know, your schedule permits and, and that's what God calls you to. Yet, if you refuse to participate in one endeavor, the voting, you'll get blasted by a lot of people as being sinful or um, unpatriotic or not fulfilling your duty. But if you forego the other, working in a food pantry, that's your prerogative, because we know that true power lies in politics, not in loving service. And I might be wrong about this, but voting sounds a lot like a lofty endeavor. But the practicality of the kingdom, I think, is is better served elsewhere. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong for voting. Uh, Because I don't think I can make that case, provided that you're, you're voting for a moral candidate and a moral party. But if you ask me where to spend your time, I'd rather have 10 million more food pantry workers than 10 million more votes. You know, votes may help to protect my freedom more, and it may mask evil through coercive legislation... But those things last as long as the president's term, and um, they don't change the heart. Loving service, though, to your community can transform hearts and communities if you believe Jesus Christ and what he said and, and his example. If living a life like Jesus is true power, then give me those 10 million food pantry workers instead of those 10 million votes. Okay, so I, I'm not really here to tell you that you shouldn't vote uh, at this moment. I'm, I'm not going to make that case right here. Um, what I All I really want to do is to show you why not voting should be an option and why it's an important option to have, especially when we're able to recognize today that evil abounds all over the place and you might be forced to face that the only moral option is to abstain from voting for an evil. So let me leave you with with four points, four proofs, evidences, arguments for why I think ultimately abstention is is something you must consider. First, it is important to recognize that voting is one optional means among many it's an option not a duty yeah, i think of it kind of kind of like this you know, if if uh you go to a gym and you've got this gym membership and you go in there and you think that you're you're awesome because you're you're in shape and there's this other guy who doesn't have a gym membership but he runs outdoors runs on trails runs marathons and you ask him hey do you have a gym membership and he says no you say, Well, you must really uh, be out of shape. You must be lazy. And that's just not true because he he exercises differently than than you do, but you're both exercising. You're you're both exercising your body. And that's kind of how I feel about people who, who say voting's a duty. Um, and in fact with you know, with the marathon runner, the marathon runner could be in a lot better shape than the person who has the gym membership, but you know uses it once a week. Um, that's how I feel about voting you know you've, you've got people who once every four years they'll come into this season and they're like you know don't forget to vote go out and vote you know I got my sticker and and they get this sticker and they're vocal about voting once every four years right They get their gym badge they get their gym membership and they they put it on their shirt and they did their duty. Um, but then you have the people who are working in the food pantries, uh, week in, week out, month in, month out, or whatever other services they're doing. And, uh, they're putting in the time all year long and they're the marathon runners. And I'm wondering why we have to have marathon runners and, and people with these gym memberships kind of arguing with each other that, uh, about their physical condition, right? It's, both, it's possible that both groups are physically fit. But at the same time, just because you have a gym membership doesn't make you fit. Just because you get that sticker once every four years doesn't mean you really did anything. But it makes people feel good to think that that's their duty. Because if that's your duty, I can do that once every four years and then um, feel good about myself. Now, of course, you have a lot of people who vote and might work at a food pantry or or do some uh some social work throughout the year uh, But then the question is why uh, why do you think that um the one is optional but the other isn't? you know why is voting this this obligation you know, if if voting is a duty, it's going to be hard for you to explain to me. How more biblical concepts of social action aren't duties. You know, helping the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, the poor. You opt out of a lot of those, but you can't opt out of voting. Why is that? Why? Why isn't? Why don't we say, hey, instead of spending time researching this candidate and giving one one hundred and thirty-seven millionth of a vote to a candidate, I'm going to spend that time uh, working with orphans and widows. You know the thing that James says is true religion. Why why isn't voting the optional thing and the other things the required things? Uh, I think you're going to have to explain explain that to me before you can tell me that abstention is, um, is a duty that we need to fulfill. Uh, abstention is a uh, immorality uh, that's going to be a problem for me. Now, uh, if you're easily offended, close your ears for the next for the next, uh, like, 30 seconds. I'm just going to tell you how this this makes me feel when people say that abstention isn't an option. Taking Yoder's words into account that we are political idolaters, which I I think has been made very clear, Uh, the way that I feel, and this is a little bit of an exaggeration, um, but the way that it makes me feel when people are so over and judgmental about having to vote and it being our duty, it, it almost sounds to me like they're saying, hey, go kiss the bust of Caesar, for he is God, right? Go, go kiss the voting booth, because that is power. And we need to know that you're on board. We need to know that you're a part of this process. We need to know that you're a team player, that you believe in our political system, and that you're going to give your your consent, your assent to it. That's how it makes me feel. Now, there are certainly different ramifications for those who don't kiss the voting booth today, as compared to those who didn't kiss the bust of Caesar. So I don't I don't want to make light of um, the consequences that exist for not giving into modern day political idolatry. But at the heart of it. I think they're essentially the same thing. It's just, in ancient Rome, it was the government making you kiss the bust. And today, for evangelical Christians, you've got a lot of Christians telling you to kiss the bust too, to kiss the voting booth. So, number two. I think it's important to recognize this concept of abstention as a legitimate option particularly for elections like like that of 2016 and the one that I, I think we're going to be having here in 2020. When the options are only evil, there has to be an option that allows us to maintain our faithfulness, our holiness. Um, and if, if both of your options in major party candidates and all of your third party options are evil, then... Abstention's all you have left. It's the only moral option. It's the only thing that allows you to avoid hypocrisy and compromise, moral compromise. It's the only thing that allows you to maintain your testimony. It's the only thing that allows you to not only be incarnate by being in the world, but also to be holy, so that the world has something that they actually want to adhere to. And you know, just a, an anecdotal example. Um, we, we have an atheist friend who just can't stand the evangelical community, but he sees us push back against our own community and hold them accountable, and he knows that we refused to vote, um, for our self-interest, right, for those religious, religious freedoms and advantages and conservative justices and all that stuff, and he sees, uh, what I believe is integrity and even though he's an atheist and even though he doesn't like evangelicals he's extremely respectful and kind and, um, and he holds us in, in high esteem I think there are a lot of Christians who have been willing to sacrifice people like my friend so that they can maintain power and so that they can get coercive force to, um, you know, put the Ten Commandments up in their faces and to make laws that, uh, that force them to act a certain way. And they, they sought that power and, man- and sought to maintain that power through immoral candidates and parties that were willing to sacrifice other groups of people, like immigrants when we have elections like we did in 2016 and like we're going to have in 2020, we need to have an option that allows us to maintain a faithful witness. Because immediate results might sound really good, but like I said, idols give you great, immediate, strong power, but they don't give you those lasting results, and it, it really comes back to bite you in the butt uh, down the road when God withdraws his hand and allows his wrath to ensue. And when you face the repercussions of all of the moral evil that you've jumped on board with, it's not pretty. Um, and, And we're allowing a lot of souls to be turned away from the kingdom because why would they want to have any part of what we're selling? Because what we're selling doesn't even work for us. It doesn't even apply to us. So why would they want it either. It's disappointing to me that a lot of people find this aspect this call to uh, personal holiness or uh, community holiness as something that is somewhat antithetical to the Bible. You know, this this idea that God would call us to holiness and a lot of people kind of throw the accusation of of being pharisaical or or whatever, when you try to uphold some moral standard in regard to to certain aspects of politics, um, which is really ironic, because you know the the whole moral majority and religious right kind of runs on this idea that there are are very moral aspects of of the political sphere. They just don't want to take morality to the ultimate end, which is that you know it's objective and. We have to follow it wherever it leads, even when some of those fingers end up pointing back at us. Now, we're good taking morality down the route that points the fingers at other people, but we don't want to take it to the the ultimate end. And so what it seems like a lot of, uh, particularly conservative Christians, my group, a lot of what we end up doing is taking morality as far as we want to take it, and then... Um, and then importing a secondary ethic that supersedes God's ethic that supersedes the first. So what we'll do is we'll we'll um, you know we'll we'll use morality as far as we like it, and then we import pragmatism or consequentialism. We we think that the pragmatic ends up being able to overthrow some of these more biblically objective and and foundational doctrines or or moral commands but you know if you if you throw off personal holiness and community holiness that that does a number on the bible and a number on the Christian life I've already mentioned how how throwing off christian morality can influence people uh, particularly non-believers who who see you as inauthentic and hypocritical You know, you you ruin the kingdom in that manner. But also, if you listen to the episode on on the Christianity Today article, I talked a little bit about how I I would say there are a lot of young people who end up leaving the church because millennials find find current Christianity, conservative Christianity, just absolutely inauthentic uh, because we don't hold ourselves to the same standards. We say one thing, but then we're willing to compromise on that for... Some imported ethic when you look at the Bible, personal holiness and community holiness is huge. A, l- a lot of uh, conservative Christians, I mean all Christians, but you know once again, talking about my group, a lot of conservative Christians are are trying to say that they're doing the will of God by by trying to accomplish God's ends, even though they're throwing off his means. What's really interesting is if you look at the Bible and you just look specifically for the phrases, God's will, you're going to find that God's will is almost always uh, pointed at this idea of personal holiness. Let's so take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray, give thanks, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8. through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 1 Peter 2. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Ephesians 5:15 15-20 Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, we see lots of explicit wills of God, and all of them that I mentioned center around personal and communal holiness. Some of them, even for the, for the specific reason of uh, being a testimony to those on the outside. And, and these are only the places that explicitly mention God's will. But you know, if you, you think of any command in general, uh, even where it doesn't use the phrase God's will, commands show will when i tell my kids to go do something i don't have to say it is my will that you go do this right when i say it that implies that that is my will for them to do it you look at the commands in scripture and they are commands for personal holiness or for community building and edification and love they are not commands that I can think of to ever throw off any of the moral ethics or the wills of God or the commands of God in order to import some alternative ethic. This notion that that the will of God centers around holiness for for his people it should be very sobering when we read other passages that talk about um, what what people receive for. Following and clinging to God's will, First John two sixteen through seventeen. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Once again, the will here is connected with you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life and desires. Um, accomplishing God's will is set up. In contrast to those things, implying that the will of God that we are doing is to combat those things in our holiness. John nine thirty one, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God, he or, and does His will, God listens to him. Once again, holiness is contrasted here, uh, or I'm sorry, God's will here is is contrasted with. Um, sin. It is God's will that we abstain from sin. And finally, Matthew seven twenty one 21-23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." This one, I think, kind of puts the icing on the cake for me because you see that there were a lot of people doing great things for God, these things that, that seem mighty and seem progressive and seem like they're great for society um, and great for, for the community. But in spite of doing all of those things, they were workers of lawlessness. You know, this, this idea, This uh, I'll call it the uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. idea, that um, we've got this sacred and secular distinction where we need to elect not somebody who has the fruits of the Spirit. That's not what we need to promote. We need to promote somebody who's a fighter because we all know that you know, the fruits of the Spirit and the ethics of Christ and His means just don't get you anywhere in the world. They, they're not effective. They're not something that we can implement and, and feel proud about. We need to fight, and we need to throw off the burden of, of God's means and God's ethic, all in the name of accomplishing something for God. But that's just not at all how the Bible depicts we are to act, and that's what this whole series has been about, the consequentialism series, showing how uh, we so easily toss to the, sides, uh, to the side God's means in God's name uh, when that is not a, at all what God requires of us and and uh, such an ethical system falls apart. When it comes to voting then, if there are not moral candidates and if there are not moral means, uh, if there is not a moral platform, it, it seems fairly clear to me that the maintenance of our moral holiness is, is not pharisaical but it is what God desires. Because the church is an alternative kingdom. It is an alternative ethic to the world. And our job is not to compromise on that holiness and that ethic in order to accomplish or seemingly accomplish things for God. But the church is the accomplishment of God in the world. It is the beacon on the hill. It is the light. And to dim that light in order to advance the kingdom uh, doesn't actually advance the kingdom. It dims the light. Um, It makes the salt uh, less useful. Sure, moral purity and, and the pursuit of holiness divorced from a love for the world is a problem. But... Without moral purity and moral holiness, we as a community, we as individuals, cannot be incarnational. And I've I've talked about this before, and I'll talk about it again. But you know, the incarnation is worthless if Jesus just became human and didn't maintain his holiness. Um, it's also worthless if Jesus became human and maintained his holiness, but did not exhibit outward love towards sinners. Right? We, we need all of those things. And so what I'm advocating is the maintenance of, of moral holiness so that there's something that we can bring the world up to. Uh, if the world sees that that we're no different than them and our willingness to compromise and uh, our, our own ethic, uh, if they see that we're hypocrites, why would they ever look at us and want to be like us? Moral holiness is vital to Christianity. Um, it's the ethic of the church. It's the means of God. And we cannot cast those off if we're going to be incarnational. This isn't advocating isolationism. It's not adv- advocating escapism and withdrawal. It's advocating that we continue to do the right thing, depend on God for the results, and engage the world where we can do so in a, consistent, a morally consistent manner. We don't need to legislate. To change the world, if if that system uh, right now is so corrupted that we can't maintain our witness, we need to serve. So I know that, uh, humanly speaking, it seems like coercive force and and legislation is the way that you accomplish things, but Jesus Christ showed us something different. Right? The least is the greatest. The slave is is the master. And uh, we need to take that to heart in our own lives. And the way that I think we do that in today's political climate, when everything is compromised, is abstention. Abstention is a means that we need on the table in order to at least sometimes, uh, when, when all options are immoral, it's an option we need on the table in order to maintain our witness and our incarnational image and effectiveness. So let's, let's assume a, a best-case scenario. Um, for point number three here, another reason why it's important to consider abstention. Um, let's consider a best-case scenario. Let's say all of the parties and candidates are moral or at least one is, so there's, there's somebody that you can vote for. That doesn't mean that abstention should not be an option for you. Because if you are a political idolater, and you recognize that politics is your idol, and you know that you can't go to that voting booth in good conscience because you are resting your hope in that vote, then you really need to consider abstention for your own soul, for your own well-being, for your own morality. Because you going to vote and feeling like that's what gives you control and that's what power is, that's a sin. That's a problem. And if you don't view abstention as an option, what you're saying is that the only option you have is to be an idolater, to uh, follow through on your idolatry. Just as an anecdotal example in my own life of something uh, where I've done something like this um, is is in regards to uh, theological education. I really wanted to get my master's in apologetics. I really would love to go to seminary. I would love um, not only for the knowledge but for the degree. Um, But I know that that would be a problem for me. Because right now when I, you know, we're missionaries and, and most people just assume that you're a pastor. And so when you go and, and people ask if you have, uh, you know, something related to you being a pastor, or what se- seminary you went to, it's always very embarrassing and this, this source of pride for me where I want to be able to give some credentials, to... Uh, because I I, I love to study theology and and philosophy and all those sorts of things, Um, and I want the credentials to go with that because I know that that's important to people. Um, But that would be a huge, huge area of pride if I did that, and so that's in part one of the reasons that I, I haven't pursued those things because I know that while on the surface it's not a bad thing to pursue those things, it is... It would be a sin for me because God is not calling me to pursue those things, and in fact, were I to pursue them, it would be a source of pride. And so, something that that isn't inherently bad, um, or something that might even be seem good on the surface, can be bad if um, if there's some internal issue going on. And if you're going to make voting an idol, politics an idol, then abstention from voting. Is going to be something very important for you to consider. My wife experienced something extremely similar too. So for for a long time, uh, singing to her, singing up in front of a church, was something that that she said. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this because I didn't ask her first. But she said that uh, it she couldn't, she would never volunteer to go up front. And, and help lead in singing because that would be an issue of pride, and that every once in a while somebody would stand behind us in church and comment on how beautiful her voice was, and she recognized the pride pride that was there, and she she didn't want to purposely walk herself into uh, into an activity that was going to um, force that pride, uh, or or make her face that, uh, or question her intentions for going into it. While she's recently been able to, uh, while God has kind of worked on her heart and she's been able to do that recently, for about a decade she wasn't able to do that. And um, there are all these things that seem good and, in fact, seem very good, right? Leading leading worship, that's great, um, but they can be bad things. And I think that's true of voting. And if we don't give people the option to, uh, to abstain, if we make it a moral duty, something that's not a moral duty, that's a problem, and we force people into sin. All right, final point, point number four. And this, I'm sure, is going to be a bit contentious, so I saved it for the end. Um, I want to argue that abstention might actually be the only means for change you know a lot of people will say well okay i can i can understand in your first three points that abstention might be important for our moral holiness and example okay i i can get on board with that maybe but most people think that if we resign ourselves to abstention we do no good and while i kind of shared how i think you can do long term good like with uh, with our atheist friend and and the example that we are to him we don't know what that's going to produce 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, we don't know what our example is going to produce. But I'm going to give you another way that abstention can actually be more beneficial and more efficient. So refer refer back to uh, episode three in our consequentialism series on the lesser of two evils. And I talked about one of the problems with embracing a lesser of two evils morality, uh, especially in politics, is if if I say okay we have two candidates they're both evil but one's less evil I will vote for the lesser evil we create a slippery slope morality because now that I've basically rubber-stamped the evils that this individual did I said you know what all your moral failings all your your moral evils on your agenda I'm willing to accept those so that I get these other things at that point you have lowered the bar for the things that you're willing to accept. And quite easily you're able to qu- create a slippery slope morality, both from your own candidates as well as reactionary candidates from the other side. And you, you lower the bar of morality and politics by rubber stamping and approving candidates. It's in regard to this that abstention can send a political message. Now, how is it going to send a political message if I'm not voting? Right? That sounds really stupid. Well, let me give you a hypothetical. And, and obviously, I understand that this hypothetical will almost certainly not happen. But I want you to imagine if it did. So there are 17% of the voting population, uh, or maybe not the voting population, maybe just the population. 17% are evangelical whites. 8% of that population is under 30 or 8% of the population is, is uh, white evangelicals under 30. So I want you to ask, what would it look like had we abstained in 2016? What, what it, are some possibilities? Let me give you one possibility that can show you how abstention could potentially work. Now, obviously I'm not saying it would have worked out this way, but I just want to show you that abstention isn't something that, that doesn't do anything it's something that does have the potential to, to do good. And especially if you are a Christian who's abstaining and you believe that God is sovereign and that God takes pleasure in your faithful obedience, then surely, even if this uh, this hypothetical that I give you is going to be something where you say, well, that's a long shot. it's not a long shot with God. Um, so here we go. Let's say... That in 2016, all 17% of the evangelical white population would have abstained from voting. Trump would have lost by a landslide, uh, I think, um, because 80% of white evangelicals voted for him. So let's say you have 17% abstain from voting for President Trump. Well, then the world would have ended, right? Because Hillary Clinton would have won. Okay, Hillary Clinton wins, she's in for four years. What happens to the Republican Party at that time? Rather than become more partisan, they go back to the drawing board and they say, why did we lose 17% or or I guess 80% of 17%, whatever that is. Why did we lose so many evangelical voters? Why didn't we get their votes? And they listen to the evangelical community who says, we're not going to vote for a guy so morally flawed like President Trump. We're not going to vote for a party that is going to talk about or treat immigrants and refugees the way that we that the way that you do. You're going to have to make some changes to get us back on board. And you know what? the next election? Republicans can't do it without conservative evangelicals. So what do the Republicans have to do? They have to find a better candidate, a candidate who's not willing to compromise, who's not willing to... To have low blows, who's not willing to be, who's not morally compromised. They're gonna have to make some policy changes and they're gonna have to make some personnel changes. And while you might have Hillary Clinton for four years, that next time around, you're gonna have a candidate who better represents the Christian community. And not only that, but a candidate who instead of polarizing people like President Trump did, is going to be more um, more palatable to the left, and that in turn is going to produce less uh, reactionary actions from the left, uh, and you're going to have probably better bipartisanship. So uh, that is a, a probably a, a best case scenario, but you know I, I don't even feel like that sounds that unreasonable. If 17% of the evangelical Uh, if 17% of the voting base just stopped voting because the candidate was immoral and the platform was immoral, I guarantee you that platform's going back to the drawing board for the next election. And they're not going to have those compromises the next time around. You prevent that slippery slope of evil by refusing to rubber-stamp it and condone it. And abstention, in that sense, is not something that does nothing, right? It's not this passive thing. And you see that, we talked about that in consequentialism, we talked about that in pacifism, this false dichotomy that um, that people so often have, which is that if you refuse to engage in the powers we think you should engage in, you therefore do nothing. And that's just not true. You know, it's, uh, it's a little ironic to me that we do, at least in, in one regard, Recognize that abstention is actually a an effective thing, or at least something that we think is important to partake in, and that is with financial abstention. There are a lot of Christians who withhold money uh, or abstain from giving money to certain um, certain businesses because of the things those businesses stand for, or the products that those those businesses um, sell. Whether that's because they were Come from sweatshops or or taking advantage of some group of people, and we recognize that um, even if our, our financial abstention doesn't bring down a business, that it is important for us to partake or uh, participate in abstention um, e- in order to help try to take down the business. But even even in light that that probably won't happen. To raise awareness about it with other people and get other people on board to start a movement, and even if that doesn't happen, uh, we view financial abstention of of um, institutions as important for our own moral adherence to um, you know to a Christian ethic that values sweatshop workers across the ocean as as human beings made in the image of God. So we believe in abstention. Um, we just are okay with abstention when it means I can get a shirt at a different uh, a different shop or from a different maker. You know, that's, that doesn't really cost me anything, um, maybe a little bit of convenience. But when it comes to abstention from political power, that just won't work for us because we know that that's what controls the world, and we know that that's what we need to wield, and we are unwilling to give up control Um, through abstention and and leave that control in God's hands. Taking a moral stand and being faithful and being obedient to God is not doing nothing. Because I believe that in doing, quote, nothing, God will bring about something very beautiful, as he proves time and time again throughout the Bible. And so often, in feeling like we're doing something immediately, That something is often brought to nothing by God and natural consequences. I hope that uh, this discussion on abstention has at least caused you to think. I hope that you are able to identify um, political idolatry around you, maybe even in your own life. And I hope that you are able to see how God calls us to far more than politics, far more, uh, to far more than 137 millionth of a vote. He calls us to, to living in the kingdom, because true power doesn't come in politics. It comes in faithful obedience, a life lived out in the kingdom as salt and light. That's what changes the world. And don't forget it. So, that's all for now. So peace. Because I'm a pacifist when i say it i mean it. a few weeks ago i was at a conference for um, missionaries who were returning from the states uh, or uh, to the states from other countries and the, I mean, it was seasoned missionaries; those missionaries who were coming off the field, and it was their last time off the field. First-time missionaries off the field, uh, and everywhere in between. It was a it was a pretty cool conference. Uh, just being able to talk with people from who had all different experiences, both because of the countries where they served, as well as just the the time that they've spent, uh, which differed between them. Uh, it was just good to, to be able to glean information and stories from a lot of varied sources. While the conference was pretty focused to kind of help us deal with different issues like how to help your kids and uh, how to work through like grief or loss or, or things like that, um, I like these these types of get-togethers for a different reason. I always like to ask... Missionaries in particular, but but also other people who have international experiences, I like to ask them two things. The first thing that I like to talk about and ask is, what are their experiences with miracles or um, the spiritual world, like the the demonic? Because even from my first experience in um, Mexico City when I taught down there right out of college um, for Basically, working alongside of missionaries from the Southern Baptist Organization, uh, the IMB, it was amazing because the the IMB was very cessationist. But when you talk to these Southern Baptist missionaries, they were like, "I've seen some pretty weird things, and you know, I know technically we're cessationists, um, but I'm not so sure about about how that works in the real world on the mission field." So that was very interesting, and and. That sort of thing seems to uh, extend to our denomination as well, which isn't as strictly cessationist. You can find people who, who aren't. But, I mean, practically, we are. Yet, when you go and talk to missionaries, they a lot of them have some interesting stories, um, ourselves included now. But that's not really the scope of this episode. The other thing that I really like to talk to Missionaries and those with international experience about, um, but especially missionaries, is their their ideas of the kingdoms. Uh, So the big K kingdom, right, uh, the kingdom that Jesus Christ brought, the kingdom of heaven, and the little K kingdom, you know, the nations. So we would we would generally call this politics. I like to ask, uh, kind of delve into the the political questions and what what I have tended to find anecdotally, and it might be, there could be a lot of reasons for this, part of it could be um having varied experiences, part of it could be that um you know the the people that I choose to ask just so happen to be the types of people who give the the answers that I find interesting. I don't know, but I do find it interesting that a lot of the answers that I get from people and a lot of the discussions that I have. End up breaking the mold for um, what you would think individuals to be. So, for instance, the the denomination that I'm with is very conservative. It's it's largely based in the South. It's um, it's very conservative, including by and large politically conservative, f- for the most part. Now, again, you can find um, a broad range if you'd go all over the country, but by and large, it's a it's a pretty conservative. Politically conservative denomination, so you would expect to find among people that uh, among missionaries that that there would be a representation in similar fashion to to what the denomination seems to be. Especially when you consider that a lot of the missionaries that are at these conferences are are older missionaries too, and so you'd think that they'd even be more conservative and more tend to be. Uh, the way that you would perceive the denomination as being but what what I have ended up finding is that missionaries actually tend to be what uh, what people would consider more liberal and that's that's a negative term the way that people throw it around unfortunately and what I mean by more liberal is just um, more open to outsiders I guess um, so I don't mean like liberal on on abortion and liberal on, you know, whatever, name your, name your moral issue. Well, I I shouldn't say moral issue because, you know, immigration and other things are moral issues too. Um, So instead of moral issue, we could say more gray issues. So for instance, you know, abortion is one of those that conservative Christians would say is very black and white. You don't do it. Um, It's something that that is clearly morally wrong. Whereas an issue like immigration, you can have a sliding scale of what's right and wrong. All the way from keep everybody out and build a huge wall to let everybody in and anything in between. right? So there's there's some sort of scale that you can um, find in terms of, of something like immigration. So what you find is that a lot of missionaries on those sorts of scaled issues... Tend to be more, more liberal. Uh, it it seems, just anecdotally speaking, and I want to talk about some of of my experiences there that I, I think are interesting. And this doesn't this doesn't prove anything, but I find it interesting that the the people who have the greatest kingdom vision, um, who have the greatest kingdom experience, the experience of the Church Universal; those people, whether that's missionaries who are abroad, or whether that's um, people who are in diverse churches, I, I find it interesting that people who have an experience of the King of the Broad Kingdom um, tend to have more liberal views. It's just interesting, something to note. So I want to give you five particular observations that I find interesting, which weigh on the issue of of voting, directly or indirectly. And, and we'll talk about each of those points here. So the first interesting observation is that what, what I find is many people who you talk to who are missionaries really don't find voting to be that compelling of an issue. There are a, a, a number of missionaries who I've talked to who don't bother getting absentee ballots. Um, they just, and, and it's not because they're they're lazy, and it's not because, um, you know, they hate America. It's because they really don't see that much of a of a point to it, and not even because they have such a little vote, though that might be part of it. But in large part, because when they're on the field and they're doing big K Kingdom work, they recognize that. I mean, by and large, like in in their their mission, the thing that's important is the church, and the thing that's important is their their work with individuals, their relationship building, and all of this. And by and large, just sending in a, a, a vote is not something that is is meaningful. Um, by and large, sure, votes can can impact things, and presidents can impact legislation and all of that, but. The early church in Rome grew under persecution and without political support. And most Christians uh, today don't have the political support of their government. Like the, The sword, the government, is really not something that's positively impacting for the kingdom compared to the work of the church. And missionaries see that. A lot, many missionaries see that they just see that voting is very overrated, and political action, tapping into political action, isn't as important for the kingdom as tapping into um, ecclesial action, the church action. Second observation is that um, there are missionaries in in some parts of the world where it seems like something like abstention is is maybe not the only Christian way to go about voting, but it's maybe the the most Christian way to go about voting. Uh, so, for instance, if you're in Mexico or Central or South America or uh, the Middle East, and, and I was speaking with an individual or a couple from, from one of these locations, and they were saying, like, how do I... People would ask me. My the congregants would ask me, who I was going to vote for, and you know I can't imagine the party that's that's chanting, build that wall, build that wall, and you know, kick them out or keep them out or whatever whatever they're chanting. No, I can't imagine telling them that I I voted. For that party, for that the individual who represented that party, how do I go to that country and preach a sermon on? You know, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Mexican nor American, Arab nor um, American, whatever. How do you go and you, you preach a sermon, um, talking about our lack of distinction in Christ and how we're aliens in our nations and that that we're all united under one kingdom, we're one blood. How do you go preach a sermon on that, and then tell people that you are with the guys who are who are chanting "build that wall," and these individuals also couldn't be with the party that uh, promoted abortion? So, how do you how do you uh, go back to a congregation and and uh, and look them in the eyes, knowing that um, you voted for somebody who? is little K kingdom-minded. It's just something that, uh, especially depending on what part of the world you're in, it makes you recognize kind of the hypocrisy or the, or the conflict of the big K versus little K kingdom. And what those missionaries in those parts of the world experience is how all of us should should feel. Because if you're like, oh, well, you know what? I If I was a missionary in Mexico... Um, I couldn't vote for the Republican Party either. So if I was a missionary in Mexico, I wouldn't vote for anybody. I, I'd abstain, sure. I can agree with that. But the thing is, why, why does you being in Mexico really affect that? Why does you being uh, in the Middle East really affect that, or you being in South America? Well, why does that matter? Because you have bro- whether you're a missionary there or you live your whole life in the United States, you have brothers and sisters who are in those parts of the world. And so when you, when you side with the, the group that's chanting, build that wall, um, you, you are chanting that against, or you are siding with that group against, brothers and sisters of the Big K kingdom. Missionaries, especially to certain parts of the world, see this more clearly than, uh, than the rest of us do. It's really easy for those of us who are stateside to have these neat parameters of what it means to vote Christianly. Um, but when we bring in these ideas of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the Big K kingdom, and uh, being aliens here, but uh, residents with, with Christ and his people as the body, the church, that's, uh, that, that should impact the way that we look at things. And surely, abstention... At least for the people who, who are present and can't lose their their witness and their testimony and and show hypocrisy, at least those people you can understand abstaining. Third, uh, a third thing that I find interesting, I was speaking with another individual from a country, who, um, where there's a very very small minority of Christians. Christians have no control of the government and nor do they have any hope of, of really getting control of the government and that's I mean I think that's true of most places around the world most countries Christians don't have access to control history and to control policy through the government um, and so it is it is a bit arrogant for us as Christians to place so much weight on government thinking that that that's really how things are done when most of the world through most of of history has not had that grasp at power. And Jesus didn't. The early church didn't. Um, it seems like th- the people who make the biggest heart changes in culture tend to actually circumvent the political means and, and use the means of the church. But anyway, I was talking with this guy or this person individual and um, just telling me what what it was like in this particular culture and he was saying that you know in in this country they they know that they don't really have a grasp of power and they don't really even care so that's that's not even something that they they really wish to change it's like well essentially like metaphorically Nero's in power why would we want to either try to be nero be a nero or why would we want to really work with nero um that's that's not our call our call is to be the church so we can be a prophetic voice like John the Baptist uh, against Herod and we can call out injustices and things and we can praise policies which are good and just and right um, but we're gonna do our church thing, like we're gonna be the church in society. We're going to uh, adopt kids. We're going whatever that looks like in a particular culture. That's what we're gonna do because we just we don't want to be Nero and we don't want to work with Nero. And we as Americans who place so much weight on political power, as if that that is the one lever that controls history, and we are obliged to pull that lever. It's our moral obligation as, as good citizens of the Little K Kingdom. And because America is a Christian nation, you know, by being a good citizen of the Little K Kingdom, I'm also a great citizen of the Big K Kingdom. Uh, that, that's just a really arrogant viewpoint and a viewpoint which goes against the grain of most countries uh, through most of human history. So believe it or not, there are other Christian perspectives out there than the American Christian perspective. All right, this this fourth point, I'm going to kind of cheat, and this isn't a conversation that I had with with any missionary in particular. I actually gleaned it from I was listening to a podcast, uh, which was an interview of another podcaster whose name is Justin Brierley from the Unbelievable Podcast, and. They were talking to him about his his perception or the the UK's perception of the last American election. And now you need to understand that Briarly and and the people who listen to him, like, he's a pretty conservative Christian. Like they're evangelicals, um that that he's representing. And he he said, Look, before before the last election cycle in the United States, we in the UK, we, we evangelical conservative Christians we thought that you know the only major difference between American evangelicals and and us was a little bit of language, um, that and maybe a little bit of food preference, but he said after the last election we realized that we are worlds apart on on our political theology and philosophy. Like we just we were flabbergasted by um, not only the candidate who evangelicals supported, but the way in which they supported them, uh, him, the party, and the president, and how they lauded him and defended him tooth and nail. So that was just, like, conservative evangelical Christians in other cultures, um, the people most like us across the globe, many of them have difficulty understanding our moral compromises uh, our political philosophy theology whatever you want to call it they just they don't understand um our our thinking on on these issues and so you can you can take that one of two ways you can take that as well a lot of the rest of the world's just wrong and our version of christianity is is very insightful and everybody should fall in line um or you can take it as like if there are a lot of other other places across the globe that are viewing politics and, and the moral choices differently, maybe there's some moral blindness that we have in our culture. Uh, maybe there's some moral idolatry and political idolatry that we have that other cultures are able to see and we should take note of, and we should listen to them and we should at least move forward very carefully. Um, And that seems to me to be a better response than to kind of go with the stereotypical arrogant American thing and just plow through it because, you know, we're strong, we're tough, we're right, um, and we know how to bash through things. So kind of going with point number three, I just find it really interesting that, that there are a lot of people, the people who are most like us across the world, there are a lot of places where those people who are most like us um, don't understand what we're doing and would caution us in in the moral choices that we're making in regard to politics. All right, I saved the most controversial one for last, the one that that might make some people hate me. Um, and, and hopefully I say this in a in a good loving way, in a way that you can understand. My perspective, even if you don't agree with it, um, but I've got really big problems. Especially having returned from overseas, um, I just see it more and more. I've got really big problems with with our nationalism here in the United States. And I, when I say nationalism, I know that those that word is loaded now, and a lot of people mean white nationalism, and that's not what I mean. I mean basically worship of country. It's different than patriotism. It's different than liking America and, and liking that we get to live here and and some of the benefits that that brings. I'm talking about worshiping country. And something small, and you might think is, is trivial, but a small place that I noticed that is it's really weird to come to the United States and to see American flags in churches. That's just weird. I don't see that anywhere else. Like uh, and and I haven't been to that many places, but talking with other missionaries who've been to a number of places like that's that's strange. You don't see that in the churches across the globe by and large. You don't see national flags in churches. And in the United States, it's it's very strange to me because we also fly Christian flags. At some of the churches. Uh, if you're going to fly an American flag, a lot of churches also fly a Christian flag. But what's so strange about that is the American flag, and I'm, I'm sure there are laws or something that tell you you should do this, but the American flag gets prominence. Like, How weird is that? Why would you fly an American flag if you have to give it prominence over the Christian flag? You know, I would either fly just the Christian flag or fly no flag. But it it says a lot when when you give prominence to your your country's flag over your savior's flag, your religion's flag. Like it's a it's a very small detail and that you can say is really trivial, but it seems quite symbolic of the way that things actually are, whether you think it's that way or not. Like that's that's what we see when we when we come to the states. Like we see how it that flag Priority is really something that is, that is insidious and is in the church. So, one example that, that I can give from, from somebody else uh, another missionary was talking to me about how they were in this church and they um, had a missions conference. And at this missions conference, they, they had all the flags of the world that were represented um, at, at the missions conference. And then, at the end, all of a sudden, kind of like at a at a marriage ceremony, the American flag, everything stops, and then there's this huge pomp and circumstance, and the American flag starts coming down the center aisle. And spontaneously, without anybody telling people to do this, everybody rose to their feet and started singing the national anthem, just bellowing it. And th- this individual told me that you know, we've been to this church. We we just had this missions conference, um, and, and we've been to this church a number of times. And he said, you can easily hear your own voice when you're singing hymns. Like, you just sit there and sing, and you know, try not to be too loud. But he said, man, when that American flag came down the aisle and everybody spontaneously stood up, there's just this pride and this glow, and everybody was just bellowing the national anthem. Um, you know, you could say, well, yeah, that's the national anthem. They were excited. It's the culmination of this, this missions conference. It's another one of those things that, that um, you can look at it and say, well, that's just a, a trivial little thing. But it says a lot. And there are lots of, quote, trivial things that really add up to not being very trivial. Um, because it's it's something that you see over and over and over again in words, in symbols, in actions. We just we worship the country. You know, th- in fact, the the thing that I as a missionary worry about the most isn't nobody cares about theological issues because you know I'm on board theologically with with. The churches that support us. Um, we communicate very well with churches that support us, but we've had some pushback. Um, and there have been some issues in regard to politics, like in, in regard to things that are perceived as questioning the Christian party, you know, the, the party that's perceived as Christian or um, American sorts of things. Um, that's where. Where people have the biggest issues, um, which is just sad, but but interesting. One of my personal experiences in regard to to this kind of weird nationalism was last Veterans Day. I was in a a church, and probably about three or four hundred people there and they wanted to acknowledge all of the veterans. And so they had um the the veterans stand up, probably 30 to 50 in this congregation because it was an older congregation. Um so there were uh some a lot of Vietnam and Korea vets especially. But I, it just especially after having done the the pacifist episodes, it was just really interesting like I I was thinking would they have? Would they have done something like this in the first couple hundred years of of the early church? It just seems weird that they'd say, "Okay, everybody who was willing to go out and kill your enemies, stand up." Right? And and would everybody have stood up with with pride? I don't think so. Um. And. and Part of that was because they they took Jesus' word seriously, but the the other part of that is because they recognized that um, Christians were in every nation. There was a big K kingdom, and it wasn't about the little K kingdom. And you might think that I'm being sacrilegious right now because I'm I'm kind of um, speaking out against the United States at the moment. And I'm really not trying to bash the United States. Uh, I'm trying to bash nationalism. Uh, but I, I think I can kind of show you that that this is a strange thing to do, this Veterans Day thing in church. Because can you imagine if there was – and I'll take a, a war that shouldn't be controversial but, but is is one where we clearly were wrong – the The Iraq War, right? The the second one, weapons of mass destruction. There there weren't weapons of mass destruction. We went in and we violated um, Iraq and killed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of civilians. Now, I would say that the Iraqis were justified in in fighting back against us. You know, if you're going to go from just war perspective we went in for no good reason and they fought back against us if if there were iraqi war veterans from that war in in that american church on the the day that they had veterans day and they asked veterans of war to stand up would those iraqi veterans have felt like they should and could stand up in that church like were we are we acknowledging all people who fought? Or are we acknowledging, basically, Americans who fought? And, in particular, if you were in the Iraq War, Americans who fought in an unjust war. I mean, either answer you give is, is going to be really strange. Because if you say that only Americans should stand up, and here we have an example of, well, actually, the, the Iraqi would would be the one who is justified and the American not justified um, in the, in the sense of participating in an unjust war. um, That's, that's going to be weird. Nobody's going to want to give, give that answer because you recognize that if you have only the American stand up um, and, and you recognize that the church is, is universal and you recognize that, that there are injustices that we we do, um, that, that would be really hard to have just the Americans stand up, to justify that. But at the same time, if you want to keep violence and keep war and keep this idea of um, American superiority and American importance in the world then to say that you want the Iraqi and the American to stand up, I can't imagine that people in that congregation would have genuinely cared about th- this idea that um, you know about celebrating people who were fighting for other countries. But if if our concern is a fight for justice and you know fighting for the good, why should it matter if somebody's an American? Or not an American? Why shouldn't we celebrate everybody? But that would be weird to have an Iraqi and American who are Christians who were both trying to kill each other in war. That would be weird too to to see that both of them are standing up um, and we're celebrating both of them for trying to kill each other. It's just strange, very very strange. This whole Christian um, notion of of just war and um, praising the military. In church, like it's just, it's just weird, and there are lots of, um, there are lots of really moral and logical problems that you run into when when you start to think about it. And what does that have to do with voting? Well, this this last point isn't really directly related to voting. It's more of just kind of um, several examples that I think highlight. This nationalism and this this strange way that we we worship our country, we worship the system, which which includes the army, but also includes the political system. We preserve these these ideals and these um, these systems. We sing their praises. We we say all these things about them, and we elevate them. Uh, and we give them honor and and um we get very proud about them and we will bellow out songs about our country when we won't even do that for god we'll put the our country's flag over over um god's flag i mean we'll, we just we do all sorts of things and so when it comes to the the issue of voting I think we have to take a, a big look at all of the ways that we uh, we buy into this this system as power and this system as, as honor. I think we have to take a look at, at all of the ways that um, that usurps the church and um, our moral ideals and it, it usurps God's role in our lives. And I think we have to, to be very cautious about how we make the United States an idol. And then we have to ask ourselves, do we do that with voting as well? Do we think that voting is this mechanism that will save us? Do we think that voting is this honorable mechanism that, um, that just has all of these wonderful attributes conferred to it because it, it uh, elevates this, this incorruptible system that, uh, that provides us with freedom and salvation? And I think we do. I think if you look at the language of voting, you look at the way people treat it, you look at the way people talk about it. Now voting, voting is an idol and and we worship it. Just like we we uh tip our hand in all of these other examples that I I mention. So in the end this very extended addendum does not prove that abstention is the right thing to do all the time, um, or even sometimes. I I think I've already kind of laid out that case in in the main episode. The addendum more so is to show you that the world's a lot more complicated, and the kingdom is a lot broader than our American viewpoint. And when you only try to understand things from the American viewpoint and the American viewpoint which we've been indoctrinated with. I mean, every country does their indoctrination, so this isn't something specifically against the United States. I'm just saying you're you're in it. I'm in it. I grew up in it. And we don't see it because we're saturated in it. And I think that's one of the blessings of being a missionary um, and one of the blessings that you can have of talking to others who do missions and going to a church that's diverse. right? That I, I think there are a lot of benefits that you get from diverse viewpoints if you can avoid just labeling, labeling them as liberal or whatever else you're going to label them so you can dismiss them. Hopefully this addendum has been helpful just to to kind of get some other perspectives on um on some things that you might consider